Hello, and welcome to our thought-provoking podcast with myself, actor, writer, director and deep thinker, Libby MacArthur, counsellor, life coach and all-round mountain man, Ross Hislop, and compassionate, strong advocate for women, motivational speaker and broadcaster, Anne Hughes. In this series of podcasts, we talk about the things that we hardly ever talk about. We attempt to unpack the obvious, important, enormous life topics, questions and controversial issues that no one hardly ever mentions or wants to discuss. Because it makes, well, at least some of us, feel a tad uncomfortable. Nothing here is overlooked. This is The Elephant in the Room. In this episode, Ross, Anne and myself attempt to make sense of how overwhelming and debilitating the feeling of anxiety can be in this fast and modern world. Anyone living with anxiety knows the power of embracing the stuff that makes us feel that way. Avoidance feeds anxiety, so living well with it means facing what makes us feel anxious and talking about it openly. So that's exactly what we did. We talked. I thought it'd be good to get the ball rolling by sharing with the others the things that don't make me anxious. Once we got that out of the way, we started some free thinking. And this is how the conversation went. Enjoy. So I suppose one, one of the things I, I, I would say, which maybe is not everybody's story, is that what doesn't make me anxious is any kind of public speaking. So that's known as one of the, the, the most anxious-making things a human being could do. But because it's my gig, then I actually have no problem with... I remember being in the Usher Hall um, and it was the the Scottish National Orchestra and I was doing the narration of The Snowman and there was like 4,000 people and, uh, and it occurred to me that that was a big issue for me. <laughs> i tell you what would really make me anxious is a date in Fratelli Sarti with one person. That would just scare the living bejesuses out of me. So it's that kind of thing of, you know, I, I'm able to kind of turn a lot of anxiousness into excitement when it comes to actually a, 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 a delivering a story. I, I can really easily take all my anxiety, which is there, and, and, and turn it into something that's much more like excitement. But I could never do that in a one-to-one if there was an agenda about a, a love affair or something like that. No. What does anxiety mean for me? What I've noticed recently is that I've been filming some of my counselling sessions for my website and um, meeting a new client, there's no anxiety. Working with clients, I have no anxiety. But what I've started to think about over the last few weeks is how being watched or being viewed by um, onlookers Hmm. can make me feel anxious. What kind of onlookers? Well, it's the onlooker of the camera. Like coming in here today to record, I was watching that and there's no anxiety about it at all because I don't feel as if I'm being watched. Mm-hmm. I don't think as if I'm being seen. But last week I was recording and there was nobody in the room but cameras. But I was really aware that the cameras were watching me. And uh, I noticed how ineffective I was at the beginning until I became accustomed to them and used to them. Did you forget about them? And I forgot about them. And then that got me thinking... A study that I had once watched about uh, uh, bicycles that were getting stolen at a university and they tried absolutely everything to stop the thieves stealing the bikes and eventually what worked was two gable-end-sized eyes painted onto the end of the building (laughs) 
And when they put the two huge 30 feet by 30 feet eyes painted onto the gable end, the bike stopped getting stolen. Wow, that's brilliant. Subliminally, Big Brother was watching. Being watched. What about you, Anne? I think anxiety is an interesting one because thinking about recording this today, if I'm really honest, anxiety does not and has never played a big role in my life. So public speaking, meeting new people, being filmed, being recorded. Not that I've been in a date for a long time, but if I was, I don't. none of that would give me anxiety. But what makes me anxious would be things like not saying what I should have said that would cause me like you have to say it so that could be a wee bit obsessive compulsive disorder as well who knows but it's like that um a missed opportunity almost would be yeah. give me more anxiety which is why and I think that's probably you know that post brain injury nearly dying thing for me is that I need to I need to do it now because I could die tomorrow so therefore I need to do it now so anxiety for me would actually be very opposite it would be in not acting that's fascinating. And acting would be, but I think, you know, as we go on to talk about anxiety, I think having, if I had to walk home tonight at midnight, the five miles from Glasgow City Centre to my house, then I would feel anxious. Point is, that's all right. You're meant to feel anxious when you do stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's about that imbalance for me, about when did natural anxiety become a problem? Sure, sure. And I suppose the thing is that anxiety is a, a, a physical state that we kind of feel and folk feel it in different ways you know maybe maybe you know you feel it curled toes maybe somebody else feels it in their tummy or you know raised you know hunched shoulders or something but it's a reaction to some sort of rumination in it your is. head you know David Bowie says you're not living life fully unless you're living slightly it's, outside your, your comfort, comfort zone, zone. Neil, you know Neil Donald Walsh would say that yeah. as well that life yeah. begins at the end of your comfort zone yeah. but you know you could sit and say I, feel, I felt as if I was going to faint but you didn't faint. I felt as if I was going to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. I felt as if everybody was looking at me. But they were neither too busy looking at themselves. Sure. And so it's like that imbalance for me is what's fascinating about anxiety. So we're talking a lot about projection and we're talking about what we decide other folk are thinking about us. Right. You know, so it's not always the truth. It's just that idea of um, at any given moment, given the right circumstances, you could be hysterical. You know, if someone was to just fire in a wee bit of information here, a wee bit of paranoia here, a wee bit, you could literally be having the hives, you know, having the heebie-jeebies, mm-hmm. having a nanny rooney. There's a lovely Scottish words for anxiety. And I was reading, there's this new book out called Sedated and it's about how we're all in a mental health crisis. But in 20% of adults, no, are taking some sort of a drug to do with their mental health, right? Mm-hmm. It's shocking. It? So a uh, 500% increase, I think, uh, since 1980. 500% increase since 1980, right? And yet mental health, half the chart. But when it comes to anxiety, actually what are doctors prescribing? They're prescribing propanol. Beta blocker. Which is a beta blocker, which is being prescribed off what it's actually meant for. It's not meant for that. It's meant for blood, blood pressure. And people are almost like taking this, is it a placebo? Is it affecting their body in another way? Because it's not affecting, you tell me, Ross, because you're, you're mere in that field, but that's not affecting MD's brain chemistry, a propano. So there's no money for talking therapy, so folk are just getting drugs Aye. instead. All these young people that are taking propano, I know quite a lot of folk that take propano and think that that's making their life better. Sure. I have been given propano once, I took it, I've got low blood pressure. I felt I have got low blood pressure. I was given propano because I was freaking out about losing my job, which was a natural response. Sure. 
to being made redundant for a job you've had for 13 years. Mm-hmm. I took one for a panel. I fell literally within 20 minutes. My heart rate did that and bounced to the ground. And I was like, I'm never taking that again. And mm-hmm. now when I go to the doctor for my migraines, I get, they're always trying to give me fucking propanol. I'm like, I don't want propanol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told you before, I talked to that woman who said, uh, I said, how are you doing? She suffered from anxiety and depression. I said, how are you doing? And she said, do you want the real story of the one I tell the doctor? I says, I don't, don't know whether you over egg the pudding for the doctor or whether you underplay it. I don't know what, what, what it is. Right. The real story of the doctor. And she says, I tell him sweet F.E. because I don't trust him to write these prescriptions for these drugs and I don't trust myself to take them because he's the doctor and I'm just a wee woman. I thought, oh God, genius. That she's actually underplaying when she goes to the doctor because she doesn't trust that he'll just sit with his pad writing out these. But that's the answer to everything now. We have um, created a system that doesn't value the human condition to the extent that a doctor's allowed to give a client six minutes of their time and has to fit a medical model into that six minutes because a heart-based model or a holistic model can't fit into a six-minute session. You're not going to find out even how the bus journey was in six minutes before your client gets to your office at your doctor's surgery. And as you've rightly said, we're living in a pandemic and it's a worldwide, it's not just isolated to Scotland. Is it not a Western worldwide? The anxiety and the mental health thing? A Western world mindset and anxiety, as we are discussing, is a very natural state. It's a natural state to fear. Um, What came before it, though, was thought. So what are you actually thinking for the body to create the chemicals, which is creating cortisol, which means we're in a high cortisol state which then that cortisol is creating a massive amount of inflammation. That amount of inflammation is then going to have a cause effect into us being depressed. Yeah. And when you said, Ross, when, when I, I said to you, you know, we're talking about anxiety and the idea of who suffers from anxiety, and, and you said every single person on the planet has suffered from anxiety at some point. Or is suffering from anxiety and mm. is completely adapted to it that they do not know what they're feeling. It's almost like... If I was to subjectively attempt to describe it, it's like a blank canvas and then a fearful situation happens in your life. Imagine taking a red brushed paint down the page. That, when you step back and look at it for the first time, is a complete contrast to a white background. You look at it the next day, it's still a contrast. You look at it a week later, you've then became accustomed to it. Then a big blue line goes through it, a yellow line, a green line, all of a sudden we've got a Jackson Pollock painting mm-hmm. of feelings of fear and anxiety, embarrassment, shame, all on the canvas that we just adapt to feeling and that becomes our normal state. Yeah. I mean, but is there no a certain element of my fears have sometimes done me a good of turn? Of course. Sometimes it is right for me to be scared. Sometimes it is right for, you know, we're all freelance. Uh-huh. We live in a world where we maybe know what we're doing for the next month, the next two months. Spinning three plates. months if we're lucky. Constantly so spinning So it would be plates. very natural for me to be really scared about where's my wages coming for in December, for example. Yeah. But I decide not to. But depending on the circle I surrounded myself with and the people I spoke to, I could believe I had anxiety about that. But so, isn't it anxiety? I'm freelance. Okay. It's the way of the world. Sure. It's all right to have, anxiety, but, to have a wee bit of anxiety about that. Yeah. So I think that's a lovely idea that let's kind of let's let's actually hold a space for us all being able to kind of just embrace a certain amount 
of how are we doing in the world and how are we being and how you know are we with friends are we are you know are we surrounded by support and and the anxiousness about all of that but I suppose what we're talking about is we're talking about when when anxiety floors us you know when the, the moments when it when it feels as if it's actually going to kind of have us under symptoms you know that that's you know what's the answer you know we're saying the first protocol is the doctor and drugs no, that can't be the way. It's got to be something else. Is it nature? Is it mindfulness? Is it connection? Is it sharing? Is it talking? You know, what's the better way for us to actually be able to kind of bounce anxiety on our lap and thank well, it for managing, guiding us? Here? It's managing our feelings and no letting our feelings manage us. And when it's something like anxiety, which is coming from a place of wanting control and certainty in our life that we can't have, it's teaching A, that we can't constantly have certainty and teaching people to be okay with not being okay that they've not got certainty. And then the next thing when you're talking about it, mindfulness to address cortisol, which is a really powerful drug. Well, how would it be smoking a pipe of crack cocaine and then sitting like a Buddha mindfully? It's not going to work. The way we need to utilise and capitalise, if you like, on the feeling of cortisol is to rush it out our body. It needs to be high intensity, aerobic exercise it needs to be getting into the body because that's where it's stored mindfully sitting to release cortisol would take an age if you want quick results you've got to use the cortisol for what it was intended as a hunter gatherer to get out the way Mm. of the fallen boulder that's about to fly out the sky or indeed the predator that's just about to jump out from behind a bush and steal all the the supplies that we've just gathered. Whereas now what we've got as predators is the credit card bill, no being able to pay our wages. As Anne's just said, think about our living expenses in December 2023. No clue what I'll be doing in December 2023. I've no clue what I'll be doing in December 2022. But there's the point. Some people would find that a terribly anxious place to be. So we're all different, I suppose, in how we look at it. But you never know what's in the corner. My God, nobody's got such a thing as a stable job for life. See, instead of going to the gym, can I dance to Donna Summers? I feel love the 12 inch over Absolutely. and over. Absolutely. I think that that it? would be far more beneficial to get your body moving and utilise the energy of cortisol than it would be sitting mm. cross legged or doing Tai Chi. That has its place, but I think that's more preventative so that that builds the resilience so that when cortisol does mm. come, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're talking about is a sharp attack on it just now. If you're sitting and you're feeling anxiety continually, it's because you've got a massive amount of cortisol going through your system. Mm-hmm. Cortisol's a really potent drug, but none of us know how to manage no. those chemicals effectively. And then those chemicals end up managing us, which means we end up getting into isolation, sure. which then increases anxiety because also connection. It's a vicious circle, you know, yeah. you touching my hand and Sarty's just to say hello. The minute you touched me and gave me body-to-body connection, my anxiety dropped. because that releases oxytocin, which then counterbalances cortisol. And we need to learn how to become an alchemist of our own biochemistry, but nobody's sitting teaching us that. And there's the point, isn't it? Because so often I think people now are living in adrenaline, aren't they? They're living in adrenaline. And adrenaline was meant, oh, there's a tiger, I better run. (laughs) It was meant to be short, it was meant to be sharp, it was meant to be 20 minutes in my life to get me to safety. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so everything else would shut down. Mm-hmm. Your your need for food would shut down. Your sexual impulses would shut down. Everything Absolutely. would shut down. Uh-huh. And now if so many people are just living in adrenaline yeah. and they wonder why their life is messed up because everything yeah. else is shut down. Yeah, of course it is. Everything is it shut has down. to shut down because it's oh. not helpful so, to think when you've been chased by a tiger. Exactly. It's not helpful. Exactly. <laughs> All those worries about paying the bills just suddenly get the door. 
Exactly. Can I tell you a story I heard once which which just really, oh my God, it was so insightful. So it was a guy I was talking to and he was involved in um, suicide prevention. And what he said to me, which, which I thought was fascinating, was he said that the same amount of women as men attempt suicide, but men are, for want of a better way of putting it, better at it. And what he basically said was it was to do with anxiety because when you've got that low-grade chronic depression that's like a wee drip, drip, tap for decades, you can keep kind of like, you know, staving off the big scary stuff for a long, long time. But when anxiety is matched with that that low-grade chronic depression, that's when people have that kind of not another minute, I can't stand it, it's enough, and they just can't bear to be in that state anymore. But because men quite often choose methods of suicide that are very proactive, mm-hmm. it's almost like they actually fling themselves in front of things or off things or, God forbid, hanging or if they can get holiday, something worse, like a, a weapon, they make that decision to be proactive about taking their own life in the peak of anxiety. And what happens with anxiety is it has peaks and troughs. So it can sustain anxiety. It does actually dissipate. Mm. So it goes up and down and up and down. Whereas women somehow choose methods of, of, of suicide which are slower. They choose drugs and drink and cutting. And, and so supposedly... When you, when you look at all of those factors, because men are actually making that decision at the height of their anxiety, then they're actually not getting saved, they're not getting found, they're not changing their minds, they're not getting a phone call, they're not, so it's, oh, it's a horrific conversation. You know, it makes me anxious even talking about it, you know, but what the guy was saying was because we don't have enough connections with each other, you know, we're not, men are worse at talking, you know. You know I've got friends on WhatsApp and quite often I'm saying things like, have a ball. And I say it to, to my, my male pals a lot, and have a ball as in B-A-W-L, you know, <laughs> you know, have a ball as in we need to learn to greet more, we need to learn to be more vulnerable, you know, we need to... You I know, think we need to learn to laugh more. I know, I know, but see when we're laughing about our own vulnerability, I mean, I, I love you for that, Ross, you're, you're great at actually kind of going, no, no, it was worse than that, no, wait till I tell you, you know, because we're always talking about how our bottle crashed or, you know, you're, you're, you just feel as if you're not cutting it all of a sudden, you know, but it's that... That was that was a revelation to me that that guy was basically saying he's personally there to help the young men that he works with understand that anxiety has peaks and troughs and to just do the three-day rule, he calls it. You know, within three days you'll feel different. Mm. It's that resurrection type stuff, you know. It's like just keep talking, keep reaching out, keep asking, keep stopping to ask for help. You know, you know reach out, especially for men. Because there's that stigma of that, that's a weakness, you know. I've got a similar thing in that I always, whenever anything happens that has upset me or fankled me or just like agitated me, I say it'll take between five minutes and five days and I'll be over it. Pretty much always works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then your worry becomes that somebody with real anxiety, so they don't get it because it's not just something I can switch on and off. And I do think. I totally appreciate that as a medical condition that has to be dealt with with something better than propanol. Mm-hmm. But it's that, like, it's the pathology of it now. And I think that I worry, I don't think, I worry that young people are starting to believe or that people are starting to be, you know, gaslighted into believing that just because you're scared and worried about the future means you've got anxiety and we must treat that. Like, they're putting a big That's label true. on them. Mm-hmm. Here's a big label of anxiety. So now you're not just Anne or Joe or Jeannie. You are now anxiety. Absolutely. You're also a divorcee. You're also being made redundant from your job. You're also not doing a very good job of bringing up your wings. 
You're also a bit fat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so, so it's because it's almost become easier for society to just label everybody. So if I can shove a big label of anxiety I'm on sorry. you and I can throw some propanol at you, yeah. that makes it my life more palatable but, but, for but, me. But we're Do you know what I mean? But back, but back into having that conversation around about certainty. You know, yes. generations ago, two generations back, you left school, you got an apprenticeship, you met your wife, you settled down, you had children, you did 30, 40, 50 years service. That was certain. Anxiety can't live when there's certainty. Whereas now we live in a structure where there's zero hour contract, there is no certainty. People are having to change jobs three times in a year, you know, 10 times throughout their 30 years of service. Certainty within our society, because society can no longer provide certainty to us. Sure. It's no there. For me, but, but, I honestly but, would say, why do we need certainty? Well, I, don't yeah, certainty. I don't want certainty either. And uh, when I'm working with young people, I'd never say to a Wayne, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't. I would never ask a kid that anymore. What I might say is I might say, have you noticed any areas where we're making a total mess of it that your personal talents might be able to contribute towards? Because let's face it, guys, we've kind of screwed it up. So, you know, you start to invent your own gig now. You start showing up. See, if I'm talking to a school kid and they talk about their teacher being a rubbish teacher, I quite often say to them, well, why don't you show up for them? You know, if you're not cutting it, why don't you be the guy that's cutting it? Because there's probably more chance that you're going to be in the light than them. Do you know what I mean? You know, we're talking about, like, doctors, doctors, jack of all trades. You know, like, we should all be challenging these guys that are in our authority positions. You know, I would say to the Waynes, say to your doctor, listen, I could read a magazine and know more about this than you. Say to your teachers, I want to talk about this. I want to... Mm. I think instead of kind of saying you should be, you know, a path should be out in front of you that you can you can um, depend on, I would say to young people, do not rely on circumstances for your well-being because anything can happen. You know, you, if you've got a sense of entitlement, ditch it now. You, you're not, you don't just have to turn up. You need to start showing up now because mm-hmm. us human beings are in this new phase. You know, the shadow's really strong, but that's because the light's stronger. We're breaking new ground, you know. So, of course, it's an anxious world, you know. So, challenging that truth does not come from authority and encouraging individuals to see that they are their own authority and they know that they They are the only authority in their own lives. They are the only authority in their own lives. It's about empowering people. I think so much at all the elephants that we will probably discuss is about how do we empower people. Like, if you were to say to me, Anne, there's a job, you're going to do that until you're 65, I would have, that's when I would have anxiety. And Nanny Rooney. Please don't tell me that I need to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But and so, so I'm in a place where I'm really good with the fact I don't really know what I'll be doing in the next couple of months because mm-hmm. it'll change and it'll be different and it'll adapt. Mm-hmm. But we've convinced people that's a dangerous way to love. Mm-hmm. But what we know for sure is, is that, that pandemic just showed us nobody's got a job for any longer than a couple of months, sure. really. There's no such thing you know anymore. I mean? There's no than such a job thing for anymore, life. But we've convinced them that's bad. And I get you've got bills to pay. Mm-hmm. I've got bills to pay. Do you know what I mean? I get it. I mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. do get mm-hmm. it. But if we actually could switch our thinking and start to think that things we've been told are bad are actually all right. Yes. It's actually quite good no knowing. It's actually quite good knowing that I can morph into something else and that my career can go down a path or my life will go down a path that I was not expecting. That actually makes my life better. Yeah. So are we saying so that... I don't are we saying that, about it. Are we saying that, it, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? 
I think it's name it to tame it because a lot of people feel a feeling and then try and push it down when we push it down we resist it yeah. when we resist it we actually empower it so when we name it to tame it we let the door the trap door off mm-hmm. the basement and let the feeling come up mm-hmm. and then when the feeling does come up and we're not resisting it mm-hmm. then it has to dissipate but in actual fact, what so many of us do is we start backpedaling. Oh, I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling anxiety, I need to go to the doctor, I need to do this, I'm starting to feel anxiety, mm-hmm. I'm starting. Mm-hmm. What they do is they start to fight it and resistance is futile to these feelings because totally. these feelings have been set up for a millennium within our survival system of our limbic brain. So we need to start translating it, we, we need, need to start, start owning it. And, 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 and it's learning. Yeah. It's learning we could then get into a debate perhaps around about the education system and it was set up for the Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution and in actual mm-hmm. fact a bell going and doing four and five classes a day is mm-hmm. antiquated and mm-hmm. we need to actually encourage our young people to bounce up in front of a whiteboard, bounce into this, mm-hmm. bounce into talking in front yeah. of a group of men, a group of women, a group of adults, mm-hmm. a group of children and diversifying totally. who they actually are mm-hmm. to be able to use anxiety instead of anxiety using them. Mm-hmm. And also to be accountable of what you're making it mean, a situation, you know, because oftentimes all these projections just don't happen. You know, that you know, people care enough. Nobody particularly wants to nurture you and nobody particularly wants to persecute you. Folk can actually get their own anxieties and their own stuff and their own... I'll tell you a wee story about something that happened to me when I was young. It was um, the Lyceum in Edinburgh. It was Brenda House charity gig and there was like, you know, 1,500 folk in the audience and I was in, only in my 30s and I was the MC, so I'm MCing it and there's, you know, big names up and all that and they're all coming up to day turns and I had this cracking monologue at the time. I was really dead pleased with it and it was... 15 minutes monologue and so apart from him saying I had my own monologue so I decided I, I was going to rewrite it that afternoon right <laughs> so at four o'clock I start changing my monologue and, and I'm supposed to learn it between four and seven and have all the MC I mean what oh, I talk about self-sabotage cut long story short I'm on I'm in the wings and Annie McCallum's just gone off and it just came on I'm just about to go back on and do my own monologue and my bottle totally crashes I can't even remember the old one. I can't even remember the new one. I'm in a complete, no, I'm in a classic in the wings. Don't know a word. Don't know a word of what I'm saying. And I'm now under symptoms. So the anxiety, physicality was massive. Dry mouth, heartbeat in your earlobes, you know, just like, thought I was going to be sick. The whole bit, like, just freaking right out. And I talked myself down by going, right, so what do you think is going to happen if you make a mess of this? There's no baby in surgery here. There's no, there's no life and death. Mm. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to find you. You're a daddy. You know you're a daddy. You know, you know what, what's going to happen? They, they, they're not going to, you know, the shepherd's crook's going to come in, the big whisk, you know, park his whistle and stuff. So then what I decided was the antidote to turning it around was me to pretend that everybody in the audience was somebody I loved, not somebody that loved me, mm. somebody I loved. And instead of worrying whether they were going to love me or find out I was a daddy, I went out. And it was like magic. It was like a miracle, guys. I went out and every face I looked at, I pretended was a, a special, significant, intimate other that I was dead pleased to see. And my whole body just went into this euphoric, cheery, 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 happy state with all my bows, all my loved ones in front of me. And the, the monologue came. The whole monologue bloody came just right out of my mouth. Do you know what I just love about that? That you just tricked yourself. Right? I did. So I say like that was sort of a wee life hack, right? And I, I work with people quite often and I'm saying that to them, right, let's try and come up with a hack of how you can get out of feeling like that. <laughs> now, me. there you go. How many people do we know in the world who are kidding on that they know what they're talking about? It's a big thing of mine just now. 
huge. They're totally kidding on, right? So if we can kid on that we know what we're talking about, we can also kid on to ourselves that we're really anxious and we cannot cope with the world and we're scared and we're fearful and all the rest of it. So if you could use all that energy that it takes to believe, for me, a, cat, a room full of cats would be the biggest anxiety I would encounter, <laughs> right? So all the energy, energy I could take to imagine a room with 30 cats in it, but they all look like what colours they are and how many claws they're going to dig into me, right? See, if I use that energy to believe that something wonderful was getting ready to happen, how much would I transform my own life? And so it's about taking that responsibility and saying, what am I going to bring to the table here? and not be powerless against Brilliant. our own fearful thoughts. And take yeah. back your projection. You know, when I'm directing something right, and I've got a bunch of actors in front of them, I say to them, um, listen, just, it's not about you. Be in service to the story, be in service to love. Would you think everybody get their clean clothes on and go on the bus to come out to find out you're a diddy? No, you know, actually it's about you showing up for your audience. It's about you actually, you know, being somebody that's, that's there for the whole product for the whole production, not about you. So that, yeah, taking back your projection and giving out something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, causes the anxiety, anxiety, fear. As mm-hmm. we've said, it's a natural response to the world. Um, I'm listening to you ladies talking away and I'm starting to ask myself questions around about social anxiety and how much anxiety I had when I was much younger and uh, now I am I started my journey of recovery for drugs and alcohol in 1993 which is 27, 28 years ago and I have been absolutely abstinent from uh, drugs and alcohol in its totality for 15 years past and in those 15 years I've actually noticed how anxious I was about going to a party going to, going to a big social gathering and um, over the years, it would have been drink. We'd have met up in the bar before you went to the, the gig, if you like, and I would have had a few halves, and I would have used drugs or alcohol as a way of managing my neurosis of anxiety. Lots but of now, people do. But now, 15 years into sobriety, and I've not used drugs or alcohol to go to a party, but what I notice now is, in those years, I would have developed a particular persona to have went into the party and went in larger than life, you know, high five and everybody when I walked in the door, all right, Anne, how you doing? No seeing you for ages, Libby, how's it going on? Mm-hmm. And really overtly, yeah. like like complete duality to who I was and how I was pretending to be able to manage my environment. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you stop drinking and all of a sudden you're healed. It's not like you stop taking drugs and all of a sudden you're healed. Mm-hmm. Far from it. You then just develop other strategies to manage your anxiety. And now I know completely that by going to a party, I am much more authentic than I've ever been in my life. Certain circumstances still bring up anxiety, but I don't have the energy to run a programme or a personality or a compensation to go in that room and no be anything but myself. That's wonderful, Ross. I mean, I'm still using alcohol to, to, to cope with anxiety. You know, I, I would still have a... You know, if I thought I was going to be in a difficult situation, I'd be like, gin and tonic or a glass of wine mm. or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, if that stat is right, that there's one in ten people in the UK have an anxiety disorder, that must be seven or eight million people. 
But also, so, what does anxiety look like? Because I talk too much. That's my anxiety. Ah. It's, it's not crippled. No. It's not being crippled and, not, oh, and sitting in the corner shaking. You know, one, one my anxiety shows up is just not being able to shut up. Trying to make folk laugh and here's a funny story and all this. I've got something to say. Could I could I just be special in this moment? Just so you don't, you know, leave uh, me behind and, and you know, that's all anxiety, all that. Or Anne said to me the day, you're looking very smart, Ross, and I never honestly never gave it a thought. I've got a shirt on the day. <laughs> I'm sitting here now having this conversation thinking, have I used the shirt and the classic look the day? as a protection mechanism, as an old-fashioned shield to actually feel comfortable enough about coming in here to do that today. And I hadn't thought about that an hour ago. There you go. How does anxiety present itself? Do we need to present to the world that we are dressed in robes, the emperor's clothes, to project that we're something that we're no because inside we feel the exact opposite. Is it all Hector Projector? I'm beginning to think it's all Hector Projector. You know, there's certain things I just could not wear, like grown-up women's clothes. I would be so anxious if I was to dress in, you know, heels or a tight skirt or have my boobs out, you know, or a cleavage. I would be riddled with all manners of projections about what people would be thinking about me if I was to try and pull that off. <laughs> There's all, all untold anxieties going I mean, on the whole time. It seems reflect on when, where our anxiety comes from, right? Have you got any thoughts on it? Because I'm saying I don't really have a, a lot of anxiety. If I was to think of my parents and my siblings, I don't think my mum, who died many years ago, I don't think she would have had much anxiety. She was a very, very strong, formidable force in the world. Uh, but I don't know, maybe that's why she was a strong, formidable force in the so world. But, you know, is it genetic? Is it life experience? Is it... I think it's a spiritual crisis in a lot of ways as yeah. well. I think it could be metaphysical. I think it could be... And I'm, I'm, before I jump into that, I wanted to just touch on what Anne was talking about, but statistics, anxiety. Anxiety affects one in ten people in the world, which you say seven or eight million people. Well, that would be in the UK, I think. That's in the UK. Mm-hmm. Boy, in my head immediately went to went, how many people does that one person's anxiety touch? <laughs> so if you've got statistics of one uh-huh. in 10 people in the UK that suffers from anxiety, how does that anxiety affect the caregivers, the children, the mothers, the fathers? You've taken me on a tangent, having two teenage daughters who do suffer from anxiety. Oh my God, anxiety affects my life, even though I don't experience it. But you it. don't have anxiety, but anxiety is affecting you. So I do, experience it. So I'm getting even my words right, because I don't experience it within me but I experience it in my life every single day because I have to deal with that anxious energy and what I've got to as a place as a mum is that it's no helpful for me to say I just wing it you'll be fine (laughs) don't be scared about this could be worse it's not helpful it's actually not helpful to my daughters for me to be overly optimistic and positive about it right and so does that give us a clue then like imagine then that so we said that everybody has different kind of manifestations of i'm being anxious so that means my my ears are red my heart's beating fast my you know toes are whatever your version is but if we put it on a in a test tube over a Benson burner as i love to say and i'm sure you'll hear it again what's at the root of it is it is it i'm frightened i'm going to get fun out is it the Parky's whistle? Is it the big shepherd's crook? Is it that imposterization syndrome? Is it the feeling that somebody's going to go, ah, you're a fucking loser. Oh, you're spotted as somebody that's not cutting it. Is it the idea we're going to be rejected for the for the tribe? Are we going to be isolated? Are we going to be on our own? You know, is it that thing that makes us want to cut our or losses and withhold our love? That's what I mean. 
do we, do we then just kind of go, well, I don't need energy. I am a rock. I am no. an island. Is that what we do when we're feeling anxious? I don't know, because you're saying it and I'm thinking about, you know, teenagers and stuff and the teenagers that I know, and I'm thinking they would say that it's like, I think, is what they're feeling is, I don't want to be noticed, I don't want to stand out. Whereas over in my camp, why would you not want to be noticed and stand out? I want everybody to notice me. But what I also get is that we're all very, very different people. Mm -hmm. And so one person's anxiety is another person's fear, I suppose. They don't want to be noticed. Or looking at anxiety. I mean, I think you know they're throwing. We're in a we're we're in a mental health pandemic, but we're also in a labelling pandemic from the narcissist to the empath. These are words that are getting thrown about. Like paranoia gets thrown about just because you're a wee bit edgy. No, paranoia is actually where you think snipers are coming down the side of the building, coming through your window. You know, you feel a wee bit panicky, you've now got anxiety. But, you know, when we, on a spectrum of anxiety, from low-level anxiety, which is fantastic to move us forward and promote us to action and creating positive outcomes and positive actions in our life, to absolutely debilitating, frozen fear response anxiety when somebody's caught in an absolute fear response of anxiety they are so self-absorbed and so self-indulgent that they can't think of anything other than what's going on inside their head you could turn around and think that was somewhat narcissistic because the only focus in their life is their anxiety Mm -hmm. and themselves and then they go along to what you've been talking about the doctors which I'd get into trouble if I turn around and says to you, I've not seen a doctor for years, and they think, well, that could actually be a bad thing because you didn't need to get a checkup. But I just don't go. I'm not going to go. You would go and they would think, that's got narcissistic personality disorder, and then they would start to treat that or no treat that with antipsychotics. You've no psychotic. You're self-absorbed because all you can think about mm. is the noise going on inside your head that must sound like a thousand screaming cats, mm. like your eardrums are about to burst with tinnitus, but it's just the level of high beta brain frequency that's ramping your brain up out of the stratosphere. You mm. can't think about anything other than that. And do you know, it Rose, looks like I, self-absorption. I, 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 totally, and I, th- I think you've made a brilliant point there because it's about time we started to, what I call, have the discernment that allows us to unveil certain things here, you know, so that we know one for the other. And and for me, we're talking about big archetypes and, and shadow stuff here. See, as a drama teacher, I'd go into a, a bunch of mains, right? So, so 35 in a class, right? And as a drama teacher, I would go in and I would say to them, right, what's your, what's your favourite fairy tale? And I would tell them that mine was the ugly duckling and the swan. But then I would say to them, I spent most of my teenage and young adult life trying to murder the ugly duckling and become a swan. Until in my 30s, having hit a wall, I realised that the ugly duckling, the fearful one, she was the one that had all the goodies. She was the empath. She was the one with all the comedy. She was the one with all the insight. She was the one with all the gold and then the hills. So I do think when I go into a... A, a community centre and, and I'm told, oh, the men's here are all rubbish. There's no, there's no actors here, hen. Oh, wait a minute, here's Chartouze and Chartouze comes in twiddling a, you know, a, a, what do you call those sticks? Baton. A baton and she's got her tap shoes on. And Chartouze is the worst storyteller in the room because she's got no time for MDLs. And the storyteller in the room is the wee specky guy in the corner who's full of anxiety, but he's got an awareness of where the pain is in the room or where the upset mm. is in the room. So it's that thing of understanding that we can use this stuff to teach us. We can use this stuff to connect us. We can we can use all that feeling of fear and upset and, and, and vulnerability if we share it with each other, if we go to each other and kind of go, oh, listen, my ball's just crashed. My face is doing its same thing here. Sorry, you just bear with me a wee minute, but, 
You need to wait for but, me, you know. You know, is our bottle crash because we feel as if we've not got anybody there for us? Is it because of the lack of connection? Yet we know one of the greatest factors for for, for curbing anxiety, for a way of treating this anxiety, is connection, is feeling that we're seen, feeling that we're met. I'll give you an no. example. I'll give you an example just, the, just, just at the weekend. I'm not saying I was particularly suffering from anxiety, but I also didn't know that I was suffering from anything. And I was hiking up the side of a mountain with my dear friend Gordon and we weren't even talking and I was just looking down and I caught the moments that we were in synergy. My left foot was dropping at the same time as his left foot. My right foot was dropping at the same time as his right foot. And in that moment, I felt peace. I wasn't uncomfortable prior to it. But I felt even more comfortable met. when I felt met. It's lovely. Is it that when we get into synergy, when we start to flow, dance together, feel the flow of each other, even if it's just something as simple as walking, that everything just disappears? Yes. Because then that's why I was saying we're maybe in a spiritual crisis. Now, word spiritual, you can hang whatever you want on it. For Catholicism to the Church of Scotland, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, for me, spiritual is just something simple as being connected. Mm. But I can only connect to myself through connecting with my environment. But when I don't feel connected to my environment, I feel something that's no nice. Would I call that anxiety? I don't know. Would you call that depression? I don't know. But what I do know is it feels a whole lot better when I'm in sync with a significant other. And you know, Ross, it makes me think about, you know, we, we, we try and avoid those vulnerabilities we try and avoid all that kind of feeling of you know being seen for the, the the real person that we are but the truth is if you want the eye of the tiger you need to look the tiger in the eye and the big joke is when we do it when we when we when we're, we feel like a total klutz with another human being they just love us for it you know I, I remember having this experience once i'll talk about it in another podcast but i really looked up thinking that i was so covered in shame and i looked up at this person and they were just looking at me like i'd done the bravest thing a human being could ever do you know and and, and I, I was I was light as a feather you know we um, love it when people are vulnerable ways we love it and I think it's interesting that you brought it down to that whole thing about connection and that's what we need now if I think back to me being a teenager and everything we didn't have the internet it was probably a thing but not a thing that we used we didn't have mobile phones he reached to me I'll meet you next Saturday at 7 o'clock on the corner of Argyle Street aye right okay I didn't have any anxiety about having a check again that I was meeting them in the corner I just turned up at 7 o'clock a week on Saturday so there was no anxiety about that and actually you know and as I was saying to you before we recorded this I'm going to meet some people I've been working with for the last 18 months in London in a couple of weeks that I have never met before we have connection 100% we have connection but it's no real. Mm-hmm. I've been joking to them. I don't know if he's a still a figment in my imagination mm-hmm. on this computer mm-hmm. screen mm-hmm. or if he's a real people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we have just lost human connection and sure. for all the beauty that modern society and all the great things, thank God we had a pandemic in a time when we could still communicate and work in the way we can. But oh my God, there has been a price to pay for it, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 an increase, and the price is the increase in all our projections about folk and not being able to know because we're not physically in their energy field. You know, I mean, one of the things I was t- talking about earlier on was that idea of somebody might say to me because of the job that I've got, private message me if you're suffering for a wee bit of shyness, why don't you? And I kind of you know like sarcastic way, and you know when I got that WhatsApp, I answered back, oh listen. 
tell me about it. And I on purpose made them feel bad because I just went on and on about how much anxiety I live with and how often. Mm. Because folk wouldn't believe that 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 I you know there's there's a shyness that I've got that's can be overwhelming. It can make me isolate. It can make me stay home. It can make me not want to meet people. My face does its own thing, and I literally <laughs> find myself just being a bit weepy and need to leave the room, you know. And folk don't think that about me, but but uh, if that's true of me, I know it's true of lots of people. Exactly. So if we were to like sort of a shine the torch on it, like we like to, like we like to. Well, performance anxiety, like you know, like like as a guy and and being around the recovery rooms for twenty eight year, a lot of guys hadn't had sex sober. Uh, well, what was it about the sex that they needed to be drunk from? Underlying anxiety. Performance, meeting somebody, being vulnerable, being naked. Mm-hmm. How many folk need to go and have a drink, which is socially acceptable, which is now moved into bars of chocolate, huge carbohydrates, a complete pandemic of com- eating processed food? Is that all a way to mask our anxiety? What is it that we're actually scared of? Is it something just as simply turning up? That's another podcast. Sex and anxiety. Performing and anxiety. Write that down, write that down. <laughs> Performance and anxiety. Totally. It's like 28 years of being in the rooms, the amount of men that I have heard saying how scared they are to actually go home to their wife and have sex now that they're in sobriety. They've been married for 30 years and they've never had sex with their wife sober. That's if that's happening in the rooms and I've heard that multiple times, was I perhaps guilty of that myself as a younger man? Absolutely. Yeah. How many people is that affecting? Oh, no. Oh, the majority, the majority of people. So if there's somebody listening though to this podcast on that journey of anxiety, if he's got a, if we get words of wisdom, don't forget to laugh. Take the air out the tire by sharing it with somebody. Have a ball, B A W L. Um, No, you are not alone by a long shot. And uh, and and don't don't, you know? I, I often think that if you're laughing, it's like I imagine the wee demons are all running about their feet with wee pitchforks all jabbing us in the ankles. But see, if you're laughing, I like to think they're go- they are they say to each other, right, boys, they're laughing. There's nothing we can do here. Come on, we need to move on to somebody else that takes themselves more seriously. And that's a metaphysical way of looking at it, but also scientifically in our survival network, uh, the brain can't feel anxious, can't feel fear if you're laughing because it triggers a response cool. that you're safe. So if you are feeling anxious, watch a comedy. If you can't sit down on your yeah. backside for 10 minutes, y- you can go on YouTube and just Google babies laughing. Totally. Start playing it on your journey when I you're often, driving totally. from Glasgow to Edinburgh. Just play laughter. Within it, 20 it, minutes, you can't help but have a belly laugh. Duck soup's always available. Have a belly <laughs> laugh. Start <laughs> laughing because you'll it's trick true. the brain into thinking that you're all right. It's true. And it'll pass. Mm-hmm. And I think well my pass. final thought is that it's all right. Do you know, a lot of fears and worries are all right and we would be in a bad place without them and we don't need yeah. to think that any fears or any worries mean we are broken. No. We are not broken. It is and part you, of the human experience. Exactly. And you start to realise that, you know, the darkest hour quite often is before dawn and that, you know, desolation and consolation and our old married couple in the same bed together. And if you meet one, you will soon meet the other two. You'll be introduced to consolation and it'll... it'll, it'll come through it will happen just the three day rule even you know aye. but uh, aye lots of love well done well done us well done and well done us see good podcast see you soon bye bye thank you for listening to our programme 
You can find future episodes on Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. With thanks to Matt Ramsey for editing and mixing this episode. This podcast was produced by Solace Sounds. Solace Sounds.